Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, and we're continuing in our walking through Jesus 101, looking at the life of Christ through the eyes of Mark. And you remember, Mark was a protege of the Apostle Peter. So when we read Mark and hear Mark, we're hearing Peter. And uh, in that account, Mark would have Mark was not a disciple, but Peter, the apostle, was. And just before we uh, open the scripture and read it, let me just kind of give a little, little kind of uh, just slight review of where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. One of the things that you see quite a lot, beginning at uh, chapter two and all the way through uh, chapter three, you see. The crowds, the crowds, Jesus' popularity is growing significantly, and crowds are following Christ. Um, There's healings, there's deliverances, there's great miracles, and certainly that's drawing attention of the people. doesn't necessarily mean they're all completely on board with Jesus' mission, but it certainly is that Jesus is drawing great crowds. Now... Who is getting kind of ticked off over this is the religious folks, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, primarily the Pharisees. They're the primary group that seems to have the most uh, pushback against Jesus and what he's doing, and they're certainly a little concerned uh, about these crowds. One of the reasons is their entire power structure is based upon the popularity and support of the people. So if Jesus is, if they're kind of moving their loyalty towards this Messiah figure, then that's certainly a threat to their power, their prestige, their money, all that. If you look in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 10, where uh, Pastor Chris did a great job last week in bringing us up to this point, notice in verse 10 of chapter 3 it says, For Jesus healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him, And literally, that means they were falling over on him. That's how how crowded it was. Remember back in chapter 2 when the friends brought their paralyzed friend to this house and they had to open up, tear open the roof and lower him down because it was so crowded they couldn't get in. How many of you go to a restaurant and when you see that line and staying out the door, you're just like, you know what, forget it. I mean, when I, see, I mean, that's a good thing if you're a restaurant, but man, I tell you, sometimes I see the crowd, I'm like, you know what, forget it, we'll go to McDonald's, maybe not McDonald's, maybe we'll splurge on Wendy's or something, but, but that's the scene, so you can remain seated, and I want us to this morning look at verses 13 through 19, uh, and that should be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, that's always a preferable place, because that's how you... Get to know your Bibles by bringing them to church, opening them up. Uh, So many times people say, I don't know the Bible. Well, guess what? This counts. This is how you learn, okay? And it may not be your your thing. If you can't read it, then get it on a phone where you can make the print real big. But get engaged with the Word of God. Don't be a passive listener. You're going to hear me just beat that drum all the time because as your shepherd, I know that growth comes by you knowing the Word of God. That's what, that's what we're here to do. So be an engaged reader and listener. But you can remain seated. should be on the screen. All right, super great group up there, always so faithful. And we're beginning at verse 13 through verse 19. 
And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. Uh, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom also he gave the name Boanerges, that's an Aramaic word that means sons of thunder, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, there's another James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon. So here we got two Simons there, the, Cana- the Cananean and, of course, Judas Iscariot, that Scripture always identifies him as the one who did what? Betrayed Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you we can... Be assembled together in freedom today in this country. Lord, we know and remember, Lord, the church in uh, Normandy where evil, demonic individuals came in and murdered a priest, a shepherd before his congregation. Lord, we live in great evil times, and your word says that the times will grow worse and worse. So while we are yet enjoying our freedom, may we not take it for granted. May we be, first of all, vigilant in praying for our nation, praying for our country. And Lord, may we ourselves be the kind of people that, Lord, are living an authentic life reflective of Jesus. Lord, knowing that there will be times of hardship, yes, even times of suffering, but Lord, we're thankful that we can be here today today in comfortable seats, air conditioning, in a hot Florida climate. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. We're reminded of those in uh, the Dominican Republic and countries that, Lord, do not even fathom the luxuries that we take for granted. So first of all, we thank you for these things. May we use them for the benefit of your kingdom and your glory. And now may we give attention to your word. Let your word convict us. Lord, let it convince us. Let it conform us, God, to your will and to your way. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. I want you to notice this section is one of those sections that when you're preaching through a book of the Bible, uh, the advantage of that is that you get a greater clarity of what God's Word says instead of just a lot of topical sermons. But one of the challenges is you've got to kind of, you know, take what comes next. So sometimes you're like, oh man, that just, how can that stir my heart? How can that be a message? And you're looking at this list of those that he called to be disciples or apostles, and you're really saying, God, what's the life lesson here? Not to take away anything from the historical reality and truth of his calling these 12 disciples, but how does this word, how do, we, how do we conform it into our lives today? So this morning, I want us to look at four lessons or principles from this passage that we read earlier that I believe will be an encouragement to us. And these are four principles or lessons that we can learn 
from Jesus' calling of these disciples, or it says apostles. You know, these 12 that he called his disciples later were apostles, okay? And uh, so here we see this calling. Now, remember back in chapter 1, we see Peter, J- Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John. They were kind of the first ones, but this is kind of more of a, of a formal rounding out of these 12 individuals. And so if I say disciples and apostles, uh, I'm talking about the same group because at this point it's using both, both terms. But what are some of these lessons and principles that we can glean from this passage of Scripture? First of all, I would have you notice this, is the fact that we, we learn from this passage that Jesus transforms ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Jesus transforms ordinary people to do extraordinary things. The first thing that stands out about this list, this group of people, is this. Nothing. Nothing stands out. I mean, if I was assembling a revolution... Kind of put it in that Jesus was not a rebel. But I was assembling a movement. I would want to make sure that I had the best and the brightest and the most impressive group of people uh, that the society and culture knew. You know how when uh, oftentimes when the candidate for president is running, one of the first things that they say is kind of a test is who they choose as their vice president or their cabinet because... They want, to make, they want to see what kind of impressive individuals that they're assembling to be part of kind of this, this government or this team. Well, what stands out is the fact that really these are just normal schmoes. These are just guys. These are just working class folks. There's no, um, <coughs> there's no academic achievement. There's no, I mean, Paul, I mean, he had the equivalent of a few PhDs, but he comes later on. He's not a part of this group. We don't see that they had any wealth, even though they were businessmen. They're not necessarily men of great wealth. Maybe Matthew or Levi, remember back in earlier when he was called, he was a tax collector or a publican. He might have kind of had himself a little slush fund, you know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, There's no social or political influence that they seem to have. Uh, They're not necessarily sophisticated or socially refined. You get the idea? I mean, these are just, these are just some, these are just ordinary people. But this is what's so striking about this passage that we could just read it and say, okay, named in, here's a list of all these people, is the fact that it reminds us that Jesus does not, and is not, is not calling extraordinary, impressive people But he's looking and calls just ordinary people that he can work his will and grace through that they become extraordinary to glorify him. He's looking for vessels that he can shine his glory through. I'll read you something that's a familiar passage to many of you. You can just listen or make a note in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 and 29. Just listen. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Paul said, who came later on, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But listen, 
But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, why does he do that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God choose ordinary people to do extraordinary measures of grace through their life is so that the individual doesn't get the attention, but so that it reflects back to what a wonderful Savior Jesus is, that he could take me, he could take you, and we can be used for his eternal kingdom purpose. Who would have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? Now, I don't know about, I know all of you, but I know in my life, there was a season, especially in junior high and high school, and just right after that, that there was not anybody that really had a vision for me doing what I'm doing today. They weren't even sure, in fact, weren't even sure I could get out of high school. And I say this to give glory to God, but I got out of high school with a GED. And earlier this year, I finished my master's degree. God did that. God did that. God opened my mind. God opened my heart. To God be the glory. God did extraordinary and is doing extraordinary things in my life, in your life, so that he can receive honor and praise of his transforming grace. Now, you may say, well, you know, I love that idea of, you know, being used by God, but I've, I've kind of come to the conclusion, you may say, that God could never use me. I can never be used by God. Well, that's exactly what Satan wants you to think. Because if you are saved a child of God. He cannot rob you of your salvation, but you know what he can do? He can render you ineffective for his kingdom. He can render you ineffective. You say, well, I'm just a, I'm just a, uh, I'm just a miserable sinner. Yes, that's what qualifies you to be used by God. That's the only thing that qualifies you to be used in his kingdom is the fact that you're not worthy. He has made you worthy. You know who I, I think of? Remember the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? And in Isaiah chapter 6, he has this tremendous vision of the holiness of God. It says in Isaiah chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train, the robe, filled the temple, and there were those angelic beings flying around day and night, singing holy Holy, holy. And when Isaiah caught that vision, he didn't say, Hey, boy, I'm glad I found you. Hey, you got the man here to do the job. No, when he, was, when he saw the holiness of God, when he was brought into the presence of God, he immediately was ashamed of his unworthiness and of his sin. And he said, and because King James is how I learned it, Woe am I, I am a man of unclean lips. Now, I don't think that means he was a cusser. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the comes out of the mouth, right? He was acknowledging, I'm an unclean man. But you know what qualified him? That one of those angels took from the, 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 the presence of God one of those fiery coals with a tongue and touched his 
mouth. You see, the only thing that qualifies you and I to be extraordinary in the kingdom is the fact that God has touched my life. Don't be impressed with me. Don't be impressed with anybody. Be impressed with Jesus. Sometimes I'll pray, Lord, don't let people come in here and be impressed with Grace Church. Let them be impressed with the God of grace, Jesus Christ. Amen? But it's, so that's, that's, that, we just kind of don't, 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 don't fall for that. Or you may say this. This is oftentimes another way the enemy comes at us is, I'm such a failure. I could never be used by God. I have failed in my life. Well, point you no further than the Apostle Peter. What about Peter? Denied Jesus. I mean, he's kind of the head apostle. He's not the pope, but he's kind of the head apostle. You always see his name first on all the lists. He denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Even after he boasted and said, Jesus, I will die for you. And Jesus said, you're not going to make it. 48 hours, pal. That's the message translation. All right? He said, I'm not going to deny you. I'll die with you. But what happened with Peter? God restored him. God restored him. God allowed his grace to take that devastating shame and failure. And God poured his grace into his life. You see, you may be broken right now, but you're not going to be broken forever. Let God's grace shine through you. Don't run from Jesus. Run into Jesus. You see, the gospel message isn't churches. We want to try to figure out ways to keep people away from Christ. No, come to Christ. He's our only hope. He's the only hope of living a transforming life that's fulfilling and living for the purposes of God. Peter, what a great example. You see, God uses broken people to make them whole. That's God's pattern. So the next time you feel like a failure, and there's times, rarely does a week go by, sometimes days, that sometimes the enemy will say, you are such a failure. You are such a failure. Anybody hear that voice every once in a while? Yeah, you bet, every one of you. The next time that happens, and I say this to myself, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. The gospel that saved you is the gospel that is transforming you, is sanctifying you, and the gospel is what will one day finish you and make you a complete whole saint to bring glory and praise to the one that not only made you, but the one that redeemed you. So when you feel like a failure, say, yes, I am. But Jesus is doing extraordinary things through this failure's life. To God be the glory. Amen? You see, our being average is the very opportunity for God to display his grace and his power in our life. Remember what the scripture says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. No, it's the gift of God. I kind of got that out of order. You have been saved through faith. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, the ESV says. It is the gift of God, not the result 
of something you've attained, lest you would brag and somehow feel like you added something to your salvation. The only thing you brought to your salvation was your sin. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that Jesus who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We're reminded that we have a treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay are not real impressive. But we have a treasure. Normally, if you have a treasure, you don't keep it in some old shoebox. Keep it in a high-end safe or somewhere impressive. If you have some uh, collection, some collected item, I have a golf ball that somebody gave me signed by Arnold Palmer. And I went and bought one of those little plastic things at Michael's or Hobby Lobby that I could put that golf ball in. I know you got to, I won't, I won't reveal your football, Jim, but because I don't want anybody to case, your, case the joint over there. But anyway, Jim knows what. You got something valuable. Now, Jim's the exception of there maybe, but anyway, you can talk with him later. The point is, if you have something valuable, something of, 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 of great worth, what do you do? You, you place it in some setting or place that, that, that is worthy of the item. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have a treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Jesus transforms ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Now, now go back and look with me at Mark. We're still here on this first point. I don't want you to get the idea that these guys are a bunch of incompetent morons. Okay? They're not. Most of them have a business. Uh, They probably, again, as good Jews, they had some education. If they were bar mitzvah, they would have gone through that as good Jewish men. They would have had to memorize... uh, you know, most of the, or certainly the Torah, and they would have been certainly students of Scripture, just like, you know, in growing up in that environment, in that culture. Look at some of these individuals. They're just average folks. Look at this list here. Simon, we call Peter, restored from his failure. You have James and John, that in term I mentioned earlier, Boa. Nerges or Boanerges, uh, which is an Aramaic word, and I'm not sure if that's even the correct pronunciation, but you try it. Uh, it means sons of thunder. In other words, these guys, when they came to Christ, they were hotheads. They were hotheads. Some of you used to be hotheads. Some of you are still hotheads, but some of but but we're working through grace. I get it. All right. You remember, now, why do I say that? In Luke 9, it gives a a little indication, and I'll just read it here, but it gives a little insight that I think is interesting, is that it's a setting where Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But it says that the people did not receive these disciples um, of Jesus. And it says, and when his disciples... James and John, I'm reading from Luke 9, 52 through 56. 
James and John, when they saw that Jesus was rejected in the Samaritan village, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It was like saying, Lord, this is a good time to nuke them. Now, now, these are the same boys that Mama, remember, she wanted one on the right side. How would you like to deal with them? You want to deal with these guys? No. But you know what Jesus did with these sons of thunder, these hotheads? He worked his grace through them. He worked his grace through them. John, interestingly, is oftentimes referred to as the apostle of love. God can take a hothead and turn him into an apostle of love, grace. Then we got Andrew, he's Peter's brother, Philip, Bartholomew. That's the same Nathaniel, same person in John 1 who was sitting under the tree and Jesus saw him. Uh, Matthew, Levi, same person. Thomas, remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas. I'm not going to believe he's rose from the dead unless I can touch him, feel him. Remember that? That's Thomas. We have another James, sometimes referred to as James the Lesser. Uh, not sure why he's lesser, maybe in just his role, or uh, some even suggested his stature, his height. Some suggest he might even be Matthew's brother. And then you got Thaddeus. Sometimes he's also called Judas. He's not... Judas Iscariot, you know, we've got Johns and Davids and we've got lots of the same names. You have another Simon. Uh, he's sometimes called Simon the Zealot. Some suggest that he was part of this political party called the Zealots. They were men who advocated the military subversive overthrow of Rome, okay? They didn't just want to say, hey, give peace a chance, no. They were in there, uh, you know, uh, forming swords and figuring out ways to, to kill Roman authorities, being subversive. They saw as a military overthrow. This Simon was identified with that movement. And then you have the last one. You have Judas Iscariot, which reminds us that familiarity with Jesus is not enough or the same as true conversion. Just because you're part of the crowd doesn't mean you're converted. You can even be a member of a church. doesn't mean you're converted. It isn't how you act today. It's how you act away from here. Your character tested in the dark when no one's looking as a follower of Christ. Just to wrap this first point up, I think it's worth noting how Jesus called such diverse people and yet there was unity in that diversity. Isn't that really what the picture of the New Testament church is? is diversity and yet unity. I mean, you take, you got a church composed of blue collar, white collar, ring around the collar. I mean, Ben collared. I mean, I don't know. You got a great group of diverse people that are unified that some of you here today wouldn't have anything to do with some of the folks here because some of you used to be so racist you wouldn't imagine coming in to a church that was a different mix or race than you are. But you're here. You socialize with people that maybe don't have the same background or education or whatever, but what makes us 
unified as a community of grace is Jesus. We have one thing in common. One thing in common is that we've all bowed the knee at the foot of the cross. That's what unifies us, and that's what will keep us together. Paul reminded the church in Corinth of how some of them used to be sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexual, thieves, greedy, drunkards, swindlers, said you're not going to, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That tells me that the early church had people that in their former life of before grace, they were sexually immoral, they were adulterers, they were greedy, they were drunks, they were swindlers, cheats, you name it. And he says, but you know what? You're here. You're here together. But you've been washed. That's not you. That's, your, that's, that's B.C. But now you're in the community of grace. You've been washed. So don't, my dad used to say this. Don't ever forget where you came from. Secondly, Jesus, another lesson we see here in this passage is that Jesus demonstrates the importance of prayer before making important decisions. Now, Jesus prayed all the time, but Luke, who recounts the same situation or the same moment in the timeline of Jesus, Luke makes this little note, this little addition in Luke 6.12 that, that says that Jesus went to the mountain to pray, just like it says in Mark, but Luke adds that he prayed all night and continued in prayer all night. It wasn't just, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray, my Lord, my soul, to, you know, it was, there was an intense, persistent time that Jesus went to the mountain to pray. There's getting ready to be a major shift in his ministry. He's going to, I mean, it isn't the fact he's looking for crowds. He and his sovereignty is going to call out individuals from that crowd. They're going to be assembled. They're going to walk with him, live with him for Three and a half years. So he prayed, and he prayed all night. That may shock you that Jesus prayed. You can go back and listen to the sermon I did back on Mark 135 that's online of why Jesus prayed. In fact, Jesus prayed in such a way that when the disciples heard him pray, what did they ask Jesus when they heard him pray? Teach us to pray like that. Now, being good Jewish boys, they knew how to pray, right? They knew how to pray. But when Jesus prayed, he prayed, Abba, Father. He was talking as if the person he was talking to was right there. When we pray, we need to remember that the Lord is right there. We're talking to a person. We're not going before the formality of a tribunal. We're going before our Heavenly Father. Jesus prayed. He prayed for others. Children were brought to Him. And He laid hands on them. He prayed for them. Sometimes He prayed with others. There's times when He took His inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and He went up on a mountain to pray. Sometimes He prayed alone. 
Sometimes we just need to be still and know that he's God. Luke 5.16 says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That means that prayer was a part of his lifestyle. It was a part of his habit. What's the principle? Is that if Jesus took time to pray, not just regular prayer, but especially over momentous decisions, jobs, money, relationships, all those things, how much do we and how much more do we, we're not Jesus, do we need to pray? Oh, did you pray about it? Yeah, I prayed about it. Well, that means, oh, Lord, you know, if you don't want me to do this, just strike me dead kind of prayer, you know? Now, he'll let you get in your mess and you wish you were dead. But um, notice thirdly, again, we're just kind of drawing forth some principles here. Thirdly, in this passage, Jesus develops leaders who are followers before they are followed. It's very important. Very important. Here's the here's say it in a different way. You and I must be willing to be under spiritual authority before we could ever be placed in a position of spiritual authority. That's very essential. You see, they were first disciples before they were apostles. One of the things that is one of the major disqualifiers of so many people is they want to lead, but they don't want to be led. Do you hear what I'm saying? They want to, be, they want to lead, and if they can't lead, then they don't want to play. I believe one of the tests of leadership development is that the person who wants to teach is teachable. And that if they always have to be the ringleader of of the situation, but when somebody else is doing it, they're AWOL. You know what that tells me? That person is not ready to be a leader. I am slow in putting people in leadership. Because that's one of those things that once you hand it out, try to get it back. And you want to talk about a battle royal? You see, when a person becomes a disciple, they're called by God. God takes the initiative. What does it say there in, our, in, in the first verse of our passage? It says, And Jesus went up onto a mountain... And Jesus called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Boy, it was so tempting to preach on the doctrine of election because you get a glimpse of that in there. God desired it. Jesus said, I want these men from the crowd. He desired it. And what happened? They came to him. So there must be a calling. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, John 15, 16. Then there follows a response. There must be obedience to the call. 
We're not robots. We have to obey. We, and then there's a commitment to follow. Remember when you read earlier in Mark 1 when Jesus came and he saw them fishing, Peter and, Je- Peter and his brother Andrew, and he said, follow me. And what did they do? They followed him. He called them, and what happened? They followed. Then he came upon, uh, who was it, James and John. And he said, follow me. And what did they do? They left his dad, left their dad there holding the business. But what did they do? He called them, and they followed him. Okay? So being a disciple isn't, Jesus wasn't taking volunteers. He wasn't taking resumes. He went up onto that mountain, prayed all night. And later, you remember in the high priestly prayer, he prayed, Father, those whom you have given to me. In the last, God's sovereignty is displayed in reversing evil and turning it for good. So where do you see that? What's Remember the last... Uh, the last disciple, apostle, his name was who? Judas Iscariot. And you think, well, why did Jesus choose him? I mean, he's praying all night. Jesus is God. He's man. I mean, what's, I mean, something went wrong there. Maybe he got things confused and... I believe, because I believe this is consistent with what the Bible teaches, is that this was all part of God's sovereign purpose and plan. Do you remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper in the upper room? If you don't, I'll quote it to you. He said, He told His disciples that not all of them were clean, clean for He knew, He knew who would betray Him. He knew that. And he said, I'm not speaking of all of you. He said, I know whom I have chosen. But the scriptures will be fulfilled. And he who ate my bread has lifted his heel, old King James, against me. Jesus knew. Jesus, you realize, remember what he told Pilate? He said, when Pilate said, you better talk. Don't you realize who I am? I've got power over your life. I can determine your fate. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own will. Okay? Jesus was never, ever out of complete sovereign control of anybody or anything, especially with Judas. Jesus' choosing of Judas was not a mistake, but here is the encouragement I want to kind of just dissect from this little part here in this passage. It was part of God's sovereign plan that Judas was chosen, that Judas would act of his own volitional evil will, but yet it was part of God's plan that would ultimately result in the most spectacular and grievous sin of all, the pure Lamb of God, Jesus the Son of God, who would be murdered and killed And yet, in that commission of that evil, evil itself was overcome by the cross. Did you catch that? 
Did you get a Pokemon notice when I said that? And you got distracted because I'm going to read it again. The thing that was led to the most evil, heinous act, Judas betraying the spotless Son of God, that resulted in the murder, the crucifixion, it was in the commission of that evil itself that God in His sovereignty used to bring about good and reverse and overcome evil by the cross. I think Peter, I know Peter had an understanding of this. Maybe not at the time. Because remember he, you know, he had that conceal and carry permit when the garden, when he whipped out that sword. Some of you just woke up. You got excited. Because now I gave you a scripture for your conceal and carry. Peter had that sword. All right? You're, you're, now you got a life verse. You're all excited now. Now, I believe that this came about as revelation because you remember in Acts chapter 2. You may want to turn your Bibles to look at this. This is a very important point that you need to get this. It's not hard. It's just you just have to see it. Peter, remember on the day of Pentecost, they all thought they were drunk because they were all speaking in languages uh, and nobody could understand each other. I don't believe that. That was a gift of tongues, but in the Greek it was dialects. It was actually known languages that was happening there. And Peter gets up because they were saying that they're all drunk. Said they can't be drunk because the liquor store doesn't open this early in the morning. No, he didn't say that. So it's only 9 a.m. or something to that effect. Then he got up to preach. Now, this is the guy that when a teenage girl pointed him out, you know, he, he freaked out. Now he's preaching with depth and, and understanding. And he says this in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or proven to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, you yourselves know, because they, they saw it. Verse 23, here you go. This Jesus, look at this the phrasing, delivered up, what? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Who crucified Jesus? God did. Read Romans chapter 3 sometime. God crucified him, but in the same breath, what does he say? Comma, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Joseph would say what man meant for evil, God intended for good. Now, I don't know what kind of evil has come against you, but let me tell you this, and I wish it was original with me. It was Tony Evans says, God is bigger than the bad. God is in control. He wasn't on vacation when your spouse walked out on you. He wasn't somewhere on a cruise when you lost your job that you thought you're going to be there for the rest of your life. You fill in the blanks. God has never left control one minute. Even though people act evil, 
God's promise is the promise that I believe Jesus knew. It's the promise that we hold on to is that Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. To those who are called according to His purpose. So here, as a reminder this morning, God's sovereignty in this little laundry list of naming the disciples is a reminder that God's sovereignty is displayed in reversing evil and turning it for good. Judas Iscariot. Jesus knew he wa- who he was. He knew what he would do. And yet, in the act of his volition and his evil, it was part of the sovereign purpose of Almighty God's plan. Does that lessen the sin? Does that make it any less sinful? No. It just means that God always has the last word. God will be glorified. And I believe this. There are many things in our life we may never, ever see the result of. Do you realize that? There may be things that happen we may never live long enough to see. But I believe this. I believe that God works all things together for good to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. Because if you don't embrace that, you embrace a devil that is parallel in his sovereignty to God. And I don't know about you, I'd rather have Almighty God through Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, running and controlling this universe and this world than to somehow constantly be trying to fit my theology with a devil that's always got a trump card over everything God does. I don't believe that. I believe God rules and reigns, even over the devil himself. Read Job someday.